Welcome to episode 93 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. I'm Ed Vasey. I'm the Culture Editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. I still have to pinch myself every day to remember that. Today we're going to be talking about an extraordinary Victorian artist called Sarah Biffin, who became a very successful miniaturist and portraitist, but only after overcoming the fact she was born in 1784 without arms. After months of research, Philip Mould's gallery on London's Pall Mall is giving Sarah Biffin a long, long overdue solo show. It's called Without Hands and is curated by Ellie Smith and Emma Rutherford, who've co-written the comprehensive catalogue. We're delighted that Philip Mould and Ellie Smith are here with us today to shed light on this little-known artist. Hello. 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 Well, hello. And also, the artist Alison Lapper was born 180 years later than Sarah Biffin, with exactly the same condition. Now, Alison famously became the focus of an enormous amount of public attention in 2005 when her friend Mark Quinn sculpted her pregnant for Trafalgar Square's fourth plinth. Alison has written the introduction to the catalogue and has a painting of her own in the show, as well as a photograph of her by Rankin. And we're delighted to have her with us too. Hello, Alison. Hello, good afternoon. Well, welcome to all of you. This is obviously a breakthrough exhibition for artists with disabilities. There were months and months of painstaking research that went into it. You consulted Professor Hisaka Joshua, specialist in disability studies at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. So let's start with Elliot Phillip. Please start by telling our listeners when you embarked on this project, why, what convinced you to give Sarah Biffin this remarkable solo show? I've always been, as a sort of art dealer who loves portraits, I've always been aware, sort of on the spectrum somewhere, that, that she's existed and has done wonderful things, but never in any sort of conspicuous or extreme way until I, I came across, when I was doing the Antiques Roadshow, I came across a Sarah Biffin. So I sort of, you know, re-googled her. We use that a lot on the Antiques Roadshow. I googled her and got reminded of her life again and then sort of forgot quite a lot about what she'd achieved until two and a half, three years ago. One of her works, an outstanding 1821 self-portrait that showed her beautifully dressed, fashionable, with a, with a black plumed hat, with all of the accoutrement of her career around her watercolours and uh, brushes and images of her miniatures in the background. So broke all records. It smashed all records and made, I think, about £120,000. And in that sort of rather heavy-handed commercial way, she, she re-emerged. And we noticed her and, and decided we must get going. You know, this is a wonderful untold story or partly told story to tell again. She started off as a fairground attraction basically didn't she so so just just give us a really quick potted history. Absolutely she was born in 1784 and she was born into a farming family in Somerset where she lived for about the first 20 years of her life and from a very young age she'd taught herself to sew and to write using her mouth. And at about the age of 20, she met a gentleman named Mr. Jukes, who offered her a contract to tour the country with him, exhibiting at fairs, where she would sew and write and draw in front of audiences who paid to come and see her. And she exhibited in this way for about 15 years, and that's where she began to learn to paint. She painted portrait miniatures for those who would pay to come and, to come and meet her. But it's really when she leaves this environment that her career as an artist kicks off. And actually, within about two years of the contract ending, um, she ends the contract in around 1819. By 1821, she has got an independent studio in London, 
She's been awarded a silver medal by the Society of Arts. She's exhibited four works at the Royal Academy and she's making her mark in the art world in the most extraordinary way. And you've got to be pretty gutsy to, to label yourself as an artist at that young age when she was kind of just at the start of her training. And it, and it was so tough in the fairground, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the life in the fair was gruesome. Yeah, she's known as the limbless wonder, wasn't she? Or was that just Dickens who called her that? Yeah, I mean, Dickens is, you know, it's rather unfortunate that, you know, our, our beloved Dickens wasn't, wasn't rather nicer about her. I mean, she, he, he, he treated her slightly as a sort of object of parody using, using the words of Mrs Nickleby. I mean, grouping her with people like Daniel Lambert, who was known for his, his huge size, as a sort of, sort of slightly freakish uh, figure. Um, with some affection, but, but with, with, with a sort of freakish figure. So I think one of the, one of the great challenges that, that Ellie had was distinguishing the sort of the myth and the, and the sort of legacy of, 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 of who, who she was and what she represented from the actual facts. Yeah, absolutely. The, the sensationalist language and the downright awful things that have been said about her needed to be completely dismissed and Sarah's voice needed to come to the fore. Um, and we did that through consulting her letters and looking at, really looking at her artworks and getting back to the primary sources rather than learning about her through the words of others. And that's really been our guiding voice along with Alison Lapper, who's obviously been advising us the whole way. So turning to you now, Alison, I mean, you know very well what an artist's struggle is. First of all, you were the first disabled person to be taken, accepted by the University of Brighton onto a degree course when you were 26. So how did you come to be aware of Sarah Biffen? Well, it was really through Ellie that I first found out about Sarah, although I believe I may have played her in a documentary a long, long time ago, and we can't actually find it, which oh, is no. a shame. Yeah, so, but I remember the, the wig and the clothes and, you know, I was sitting on a table painting, so I have a feeling it was Sarah. Because you both have, is it true, you've both got exactly the same disability, is that right? From what I've seen of from pictures and description, absolutely. I mean, she, she didn't, I use my legs to walk still but she was absolutely right we do look like we're ducks when we're walking and she refused completely to be seen walking because she felt it was so ungainly so and you both paint with your mouth yes that's right and she used her shoulder as well a lot for you Alison how exciting is this to have a major show in a major and highly renowned Philip <laughs> you know, West End you know Pall Mall Gallery no less about a disabled artist I mean this is quite a breakthrough isn't it I'm not aware of having seen a lot of disabled artists work certainly not given solo shows certainly not in my lifetime anyway so yeah it's it's phenomenal because disabled artists even today are not given those kind of opportunities so and to, you know someone when obviously Sarah was alive you know it was such a different ball game I mean I've never had to join the circus although sometimes it does feel like I'm actually am in a circus so I I can relate to a lot of you know people watching you paint I remember painting in Hyde Park and someone said to me oh um I'm a mouth and foot painting artist we don't we thought you guys just signed things that you didn't actually paint them so if people can think that now, you know, the fact that what she was doing when she was doing, and also, you know, I find travelling exhausting. And there she was travelling, you know, country and then Europe. And so, yeah, she was, she was phenomenal for her time. Absolutely. 
But do you have do you have any art in the exhibition as well, Alison? I know you've got your photograph by Rankin. I have one self-portrait that I tried to do it a miniature and I gave that up after about three days. Um, so I've done a smallish kind of self-portrait, but fortunately I've got a lot of hair and it's in my face. And so it's kind of, yeah, around my hair, really. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the miniature work and that was exactly going to be my next question. Had you tried it? Because I can't imagine with your mouth how difficult that must be to do something so precise. And she also painted a lot of feathers, incredibly fine brushwork. I mean, it must be, I mean, from your point of view, just how bloody difficult is that? It's extremely, I mean, she used watercolour for, you know, example. I mean, I battle with watercolour and it, you know, the feathers, you almost think you can pick them up. They're so amazing and lifelike. And I, I just, you know, that is amazing control. I mean, they do say, and I don't know how true this is, that because you're working with your mouth, it's closer to your brain, that there's supposed to be more control. But who knows? I don't know, really. But Alison, I mean, it's a bit like interviewing you and Sarah Biffin together uh, as you channel your... I mean, you are a remarkable artist. I mean, how did it begin? I mean, it must be so difficult to start and the perseverance you must have had to continue what was that like I think for both of us for myself and and for Sarah you know that determination not to give up and to, to be seen as equal and not as this kind of strange circus act and what have you and I, I still think that goes on very much today and and it's hard it's, it's really hard getting yourself out there I mean for me the, the sculpture that Mark did when I was pregnant really really you know it put me on a on a plinth literally and that has not damaged my you know artistic career at all it's really helped so the fact that you know Sarah didn't even have that is is phenomenal I mean I can remember the plinth obviously and it was a I mean I didn't quite know how to put this I mean it was a sort of groundbreaking piece of art which leads me to be in danger of committing the sins of others in terms of remarking about it but it was groundbreaking and I think it says something about the times that I think we still live in but I think of all the fourth plinth exhibits apart from Yinko Shonobear's ship in a bottle it is the most memorable and striking because it does what art is meant to do it's it provokes it makes you think absolutely it starts a debate but I can imagine for you it was a mixed time because on the one hand it was recognition and it was out there I mean you're naked as well hey. in the sculpture I should say <laughs> I'm pregnant I'm pregnant I mean you tick, you tick quite a lot of boxes incredibly exposing and also I can imagine there was a large constituency of people who were deeply unpleasant oh I mean when it when it first came out into the the public eye and in the newspapers before I even got on the plinth I mean the you know vulgar Trafalgar and the things that people were saying about me it's good job I wasn't offended but you know the fact that what I find so wonderful is is my body because he cast me as I was pregnant is a piece of artwork and who looks at uh you know, a disabled person and go, that's a piece of artwork. Look at that. It's unique. So again, you know, I tried to embrace the positive rather than all the negative press. I mean, I actually got an apology from the sun. So I think that was probably um, one of the very few people that got that. And just to be the words that we used around, you know, I'm, I'm always called disabled artist, never artist Alison Lapper, ever. Yes, exactly. I'm always labelled 
you know, disabled first. And where is the sculpture now? Do you know, the last time I saw myself, I was on the back of a lorry on the N25. Do you know what? I was, li- I was literally, I was literally about to, I was about, I was literally about to say, don't tell me it's on a lorry going down the A1. <laughs> That's hilarious. And a friend was actually on the motorway, yeah, at the time. And she sent me a photo going, look who I've just seen, you. So I think I'm off to Italy or somewhere to be, to be, cleaned because the pigeons quite like sitting on me on the in Trafalgar Square. But surely it should find a permanent place. Well, I mean I would be over the moon if that if that happened because I think it really did break down an awful lot of barriers and it you know it got the conversation of body, disability, how you look, it got that conversation out into the public and that's really the first time that it's ever happened. And so you must be hoping that this exhibition is going to do rather the same thing. I mean, I'd be really interested to know what the response has been from other disabled artists, Philip and Ellie, if if any yet. I suppose that's something we're we're hoping that will happen. Um, We're sure there'll be people will come back and challenge us. And we hope that we've researched enough and that we've presented her as the way she would want to be presented. She got a Royal Society silver medal when she was alive, Sarah Biffin. But you, presumably hoping, expecting, I should say, your exhibition will be reviewed by art critics. And as Alison says, rather than being a disabled artist, it will be a review of Sarah Biffin, an 18th century female artist, because again, she ticks multiple boxes, because of course, with people like Katie Hessel now writing as well, you know, there is now a movement quite rightly to recognise women artists through the ages. Absolutely. And I think we tried, it was tricky with Biffin because we wanted to present her as an artist first, but without ignoring the fact that she was a woman at a time that was dominated by men and she was disabled in a society which didn't able her or wasn't willing to allow her to succeed in a way that that non-disabled men were. So it's a tricky line to tread. And it's quite interesting also to, to, to break down her, of her works and, and, and see the things that she excelled in and, and specialised in. I mean, for a couple of years, as we've touched upon, she did nothing but exquisite exotic feathers, you know, light enough to blow off the paper, they feel, with these wonderful colours. So you, you could imagine they would have been reasonably, reasonably easy to get hold of because of hats at the period. But it was just a way of her showing the extreme virtuosity of her achievement. I mean, to be able to do that, you know, with such a lightness of touch. And the other thing that we found time and time again, and and we've now sort of devoted a large portion of the exhibition to this, and, and I'm just wondering actually whether there's an overlap here with, with, with Alison, it's something we could perhaps talk about, was she returned time and time again to portraying herself to the self-portrait. And obviously that, that allowed her to do two things. It, it obviously showed her her skill as a portrait painter, which on occasions was truly outstanding. You know, she could hold her own in a very competitive miniature market. But it also, it was her as well. It was, she was the embodiment of having transcended these challenges. Um, and you can see, you know, that the brush is, is attached to her shoulder. And although, she looks to all intents and purposes like, you know, 
your average fashionable society artist of the period, you can see that, uh, you know, she, she was born uh, with this condition. And I, I, I don't know what it is about her, but I, I think what has come through to me about this exhibition is the indomitable self-confidence, the coolness, the smoothness with which she, she comfortably presented herself like that. But you have that, Alison. I saw a short film about you, which was absolutely, you were very funny in it when you said, you know, when you were born and hidden away because they thought you were going to frighten the public and now that's your mission. And (laughs) (laughs) Which I love, that really made me laugh. But you also said at the end, I was quite moved by it. You said, I just don't know where I get my confidence from. I really don't. I mean, I'm so lucky that I that I have it and I you know I know that if I'm going down the street in my electric wheelchair I frighten the life out of people I don't quite know what I think I'm going to do to them but to have that confidence and I I mean I've said it so many times now but I'm I feel like sometimes I'm Sarah reincarnated again because I've got her phenomenal kind of I'm going to do this I'm going to succeed going to make a living and that's exactly what you know she she did and in a time that even as a woman was was so difficult, never mind about having a disability. I think her early childhood with the family were was a very important grounding. I, I was in care, so it was a very different upbringing. But I think for Sarah, that life of being on the farm with the family, and, you know, she was embraced, she was loved and respected. And I think that probably helped her to gather this enormous strength and just go, I'm, I'm going to do this, definitely. And actually, can I just add here, expand this, this, this subject of, you know, trying to encourage other artists to come out of the woodwork and, and also historically, because one of the great surprises of this exhibition is an essay that is now in the catalogue which um, highlights the life of two American artists who had a similar uh, condition, we think, to uh, Sarah, who, who made a living, who came over here as well. Or was it one or both of them, Ellie? One did visit, yeah, visited mm. England and, and saw Sarah Biffin's work and was so inspired. You can see the difference in her work pre and post meeting Biffin. She really tries to replicate what she does. That was Sarah Rogers and Martha Ann Honeywell, is that right? Exactly. Where is any of their work seeable today their work is in that you can find a few of them in um in american museums and in fact in the catalogue we've illustrated a few of their work so if you come to the exhibition you'll be able to see a few in there what is great about this and it it equates to you know what alison's particularly conspicuous moment on on the plinth in, in genders is that things happen you know you notice that there were other artists at work you 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 know Scholarship begets scholarship, and, and I think this is what's going to happen more. And if we've been able to push or, or shove it in the, in the right direction, well, I think we'll have, we'll have felt we've done a good job, won't you? I hope so. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if since your first class honours degree, Alison, which was an unbelievably fabulous achievement, how many more disabled artists do you think have, have, have been offered places? I actually don't even know the the number. I I believe it would be actually very interesting to know because I know that like when I was doing my degree, there wasn't any help or anything. You know, I had to get the other students to help me and what have you. Whereas now you actually do have a PA with you that will go with you to lectures and write notes and, and, you know, help you build or whatever you want to do. So I think that's got better. And I know for a fact, because I now go back to Brighton and uh, teach sometimes that 
the access is so much better. I mean, I used to get stuck between fire doors and because I'm only three foot ten, nobody knew I was there and I'd be late. <laughs> Where have you been? Between the fire doors. We have made progress, but not nearly enough progress. I mean, even, even when I was a minister, I couldn't take certain civil servants with me to Parliament because they were in wheelchairs. I mean, it's just appalling. It may just be worth pointing out at this point. I don't think uh, you said without arms, Ed. I don't think I, I don't think we. I, I think from what we know, um, Sarah didn't have legs either. She had toes, but she didn't have legs. I thought she had legs like mine. From the descriptions that that we've been able to to deduce, I think similar, Alison. Given that that wonderful letter that we that we read of hers, of her describing that that she didn't enjoy walking. Yeah, I think I think that's that's what we can ascertain. But this this is the. You know, we'll, we'll never know for sure. And I think arguably her, her artwork and, and her letters will, will speak for her on that part. Do we know how tall she was, for example? No, I mean, certainly, I mean, the, the, quote, the, the quote from Dickens, you know, who, who was an observer, but he does, you know, obviously he was, he's a fiction writer as well. But he says, Mrs. Nickleby, uh, correcting herself, says, um, I think she only had toes, but the principle is the same. It's, it's, on a, it's to do with a larger piece about legs. So, I don't know. But I, 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 you, you think she might have had... Yeah, I think you've hit upon a really poignant point, actually, Philip, and that is that as soon as people start making their own comments about her, that's where these myths start to become perpetuated. And it's through the likes of people like Dickens that actually these myths have, have persisted throughout history. Mm. And so getting back, as we were saying earlier, getting back to the primary sources in this exhibition was, it was mm. so important for us. So, I mean, we know, for example, that when she went to church that she would roll down the aisle that was that was how that was her her sort of her means of, of movement. She mentioned in the letter that she really felt that her walk was so ungainly and that she didn't want people to see it. I mean, if you'd said to me, "Roll down that aisle or walk down that aisle," I would definitely walk, even though I, as I say, it's not the most amazing walk, but that's my choice, and that that just is so her that she would choose to do something that you know is so stubborn and you know, it's her thing. So I, I think that, you know, and I get described as having no legs, no feet, no this, no that. You know, there's a whole myth uh, and, and people have seen my body, they've seen the sculpture and yet still I get described as so many different things. My legs are this big or they don't exist or they're that. So I think, as Ellie was saying, it's very much about when other people get hold of information and they kind of turn it around a little bit. I'm just wondering, Alice, what was it like being photographed by Rankin? Oh, it was it was great fun. Rankin and I, we just hit it off straight away. I think he called me Gobby and I was like, yeah, he's got me down to a T already. And he hadn't even met me at that point. So, yeah, he was, you know, really fun and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I've never shied away, believe it, believe it not, from being photographed or, you know, put on a fourth plinth. So I think the fact that I quite like putting myself out there because I, I still feel that it's important that we see images of people who are different. I'm not even going to use that word disability because it's like, you know, I'm just, I'm different, but I'm still a human being. And I think that was very much, you know, Sarah, she was different, but, you know, she was a force to be reckoned with, definitely. I mean, I, it's just such an incredible story. And, you know, Ellie, to you and to Sarah Rutherford, who compiled the catalogue and so on, and I mean, what a huge amount of research it must have been. And to find 
Or, I mean, where? how did you gather all these paintings? I mean, they must have come from all over the place, didn't they? That was what was so amazing is they, her artworks are as widespread, if not wider spread, than, than she travelled herself. So there was a lot of digging through archives, a lot of meeting with curators um, across the UK and bringing out works that have been either misattributed to her. She exhibited under her husband's name as Mrs Wright for a period, um, the period between 1824 and 1841. So a lot of her works were kind of slipped under the radar. But we went from the start of the exhibition of knowing of around 20 of her works, and we now know of over 200. Oh, wow. So we've, um, we've been able to, to really, we hope, add, add to her history. Well, I think it's very exciting and pioneering. And, and how long is it running for? Till the middle of December, I think. Exactly, it runs until the 21st of December. And everyone, everyone is welcome. So one last question, Alison. When are you going to have an exhibition? I'm having an exhibition next spring. My, unfortunately, my son, my 19-year-old son died uh, three years ago and I fell apart. But now I, I want to do something in his name that is his legacy. And I've started a, basically a project. It's called The Drug of Art, which people can find on the internet. And it's all about young people, mental health. So the exhibition for me is about watching Paris basically lose his life through drugs and mental health, really. So a bit sad, obviously, for other people, but I, I feel that he needs to be and other people who've got mental health, you know, that it needs to be recognised that this is something really, it's an epidemic now and we need to do something about it. I absolutely agree. In fact, the podcast we had last week was all about mental health and how poetry can help people describe their emotions and get in touch with their feelings better. So where might that be, this this exhibition? Do you have a venue for it yet? We haven't got a venue yet, but we, as soon as we know, we will obviously be posting it everywhere. So and we're hoping London somewhere to start with. Well, let's hope that after this podcast, you'll be <laughs> deluged with offers and please... Please come back and tell us all about it. Thank you. I'd love to. Well, no, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next week, we're going to be talking about photography and fashion and how photography is increasingly challenging our perceptions and blurring the boundaries between fashion and art. We're going to be chatting to two black photographers whose work is being exhibited by a groundbreaking new show, The New Black Vanguard, the Sarge Gallery, curated by the American writer, editor and curator Antoine Sarge. We'll also be talking to the Iranian-born photographer Mariam Eisler, who has an exhibition opening on Cork Street called If Only the Walls Could Talk. Her sumptuous and beautiful photographs set in the glorious Norpinus Hotel Italian Al challenging the current androgynous grungy images of women in fashion. So do tune in next week for what promises to be a very lively discussion. As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com where you'll also find the latest edition of the magazine as well as be able to listen to our sister podcast House Guest with Carol Annette talking to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback and we'd also like to hear if there's anything you'd like to hear us profiling or changing. So please send me a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk. Thank you very much indeed for listening and see you next week. Goodbye. Take care. Bye.